Welcome back to the Dirt Show. Um, in my book, um, which some of you think I mentioned too much, but I'm very proud of it. In my book, at Trump, I go over all four of the charges that are being investigated against uh, Trump. Um, a couple of days ago uh, on this show, I went over the New York charge and found that I don't even think of what came down as an indictment. It's just 34 or whatever, checks and invoices in search of a legal theory. I, I just don't understand it particularly. But I went over the New York one uh, first. Then um, yesterday I went over Fulton County, Georgia, and found also that um, if that's all they have, I mean, they have more, who knows? I'm, I'm just talking about what's in the public record. I've listened to the entire recording of the conversation between the Secretary of State in Georgia and and uh, the, the then president of the United States. And I just don't see anything that can form the basis of a criminal uh, prosecution. Yes, he did say, I need to find 11,000 votes. Um, even if you believe he meant by that, uh, I need to manufacture or concoct. That's not enough for a criminal prosecution. You can't prosecute people on the basis of ambiguous statements in which you infer from what they said, what they must have believed, and what was intended to be conveyed to the person with whom he was speaking too much of a stretch and the concept of lenity and proof beyond a reasonable doubt, make it clear that there cannot legitimately be a prosecution based on what we know about the evidence in the Georgia case. So today uh, I'm going to focus on the uh, Florida case and then next week we'll, we'll talk about the DC case and that way we'll wrap up the four basic investigations that, um, that are the thesis of of, of my book at Trump. The, the actual thesis of the book, obviously, is that um, prosecutors today, particularly on the Democratic side, uh, set out to get Trump, and then they searched for crimes. And in each instance, they didn't find any, or they didn't find enough to warrant a prosecution. It's a little different in Florida. And so let's get into that in some somewhat greater uh, detail. Um, in some respects, Finding classified material in a location that it's not authorized, uh, if it's indeed classified at the time, remains classified, is a, a crime. It's a crime whether the possession is by um, Donald Trump or by uh, uh, Joe Biden or by uh, former Vice President uh, Pence. Now, there is an issue about whether you have to know you possessed it. Uh, there are cases that say, possession means that you know you have it. Uh, for example, um, you remember the, the Brittany Griner uh, case. In the beginning, she alleged that she hadn't put the vaping material in her own case. Somebody else had put it in there and planted it. If that were true, um, possession would not be enough. That is, you can't make it a crime to possess something without the government satisfying its burden of proof that you knowingly possessed it, that you knew you possessed it. You didn't necessarily have to know it was illegal. But if somebody plants a drug on you, I used to have a class in which I would have a friend of mine who was a policeman in Cambridge, and he would show our students how searches are conducted, stop and frisk particularly. And he would search a student. He, the volunteer would come up and he'd search him. The student would be a perfectly innocent student. And lo and behold, there was heroin, marijuana, uh, cannabis, uh, and you name it, in every pocket. Uh, obviously, my friend Frank had planted it there. He was a pretty good expert uh, 
at that, he didn't do it as a real cop, but he knew how to do that. Now, you know, if 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 the government fails to prove that the possession was knowing, then it it can't uh, it can't be a crime. There's no absolute liability for possession of classified material um, if um, it was they put there against without your your knowledge. Now, you know, we may get to negligence. Um, here's my sense of that. I believe, and I challenge anyone to disprove it, that every single president of the United States in my lifetime, and if you go back to my lifetime, it's Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Harry Truman, Dwight Eisenhower, uh, 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 John Kennedy, the first person I voted for, Lyndon Johnson, et cetera, et cetera. I am sure every single one of them um, had classified material somewhere in an unauthorized place uh, when they left the, the presidency. Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, of course, left as a result of his death, as did John F. Kennedy. Um, it's a different situation there because dead people don't possess um, but the people who left the uh, White House on designated days, that would also not include Richard Nixon. Uh, it would include Richard Nixon in the sense that although he left suddenly, he obviously took his personal stuff with him. Um, and each of them have libraries and the libraries are controlled by the National Archives. And uh, they do make provision for containing and possessing classified material, which then can become declassified over time. Even I, as just a private citizen, I donated all of my papers to Brooklyn College, but I have restrictions on some of them, obviously. Um, Lawyer-client privilege communications uh, can't be revealed for, I don't remember how long it was, 50 years after the death of all the parties. So those kinds of things occur by contract or by law sometimes even with private people, but with former presidents, they're supposed to leave their classified material behind and give it to the proper authorities to handle in the way the classified material should be handled. Uh, Trump didn't do that. Um, neither did Biden, and neither did Pence, and I predict or suspect neither did any of the other previous presidents. They just haven't been found. By the way, I came up with some people think it's a cockamamie idea, but uh, by the way, you know what the word cockamamie comes from? You know, it's a, it's a great word, cockamamie. Um, uh, it comes from uh, the little tattoos that when you were kids, uh, you would get out of a cereal box and, and put on you and it would, you know, wash off in two days. But that was called uh, a cockamamie. And it comes from uh, a corruption of the word, of a, of, a, of a fancier word that has to do with putting it on your putting it on your skin. But it's come to mean crazy and insane. And uh, so I don't think my idea is that, but here's what it is. And that is in order for something to be classified, generally it has to have a stamp. The stamp has to say classified. And then you see it says classified. Well, that stamp easily can contain an electronic tracking device. So as soon as something is marked classified, it's easily findable by just putting a wand over it, an electronic wand. And so when a president leaves the White House, all the Secret Service has to do is go around the papers and go, ooh, magic, magic, magic. Whoop, there's a classified document. Whoop, there's a classified document. 
no, that one's been declassified. All right, we'll leave that. Uh, there are technological solutions to this. May, they may not be perfect, but uh, better than the current. And so without these technological solutions, I think presidents just throw things <laughs> into boxes and bring them home, like when you move. <laughs> and so um, <clears throat> I suspect every president has violated the law in some respects involving classified uh, um, material. That doesn't mean that a person can't be prosecuted for doing it, but in the political reality in which we live, um, if that's all there is, if all there is is unlawful, unauthorized possession of classified material, it would be politically unthinkable to prosecute uh, Donald Trump without also prosecuting um, uh, President Biden without also prosecuting Pence and without investigating all the other uh, living presidents to see whether or not they ever did do now contain classified material. That, that's not a legal requirement, but it's a political requirement. You can't have uh, unequal justice in that way when two people who are running for president, one's a Republican, one's a Democrat, one's the incumbent, one's the former president who wants to be the future president. You can't have different standards applied to them. So if all we're dealing with is possession of classified material, it becomes impossible to do it to one and not to the other. Of course, President Trump takes the position. His lawyers don't take the position. As far as I know, his lawyers have not taken this position in court. But he's taken the public position that he declassified all this material before he took it home. And as you know, the law is as unclear as could be uh, about what constitutes declassification. Uh, I'm told, I've read, I don't know from personal experience, that um, President Bush, I don't remember which one, I think it was the first one, was at a meeting with some Japanese diplomats and some issue came up and the president, apparently, according to the story, kind of snapped his fingers and said, all right, I need to declassify that now because I want to tell him about it. And so it became declassified. Um, now, if there is evidence that the president Trump declassified, then he's clear. Now, the real question that nobody knows the answer to is who has the burden of proof on that, because whoever has the burden of proof loses. Um, if um, if the government has to prove that the president didn't declassify, they're not going to be able to, to do that if the president can just snap his fingers and declassify. If, on the other hand, the defendant in a criminal case, the former president, would have an obligation to prove or at least raise evidence that disproves, um, that would be a hard thing to do because if he did it, he probably didn't keep a record of it. If he kept a record, of course, that would be golden his point of view. <clears throat> so uh, we have to divide um, what happened in Florida into two. One, the mere possession. I don't think they have him on that. Uh, it, it may be a crime, but they're not going to prosecute him for mere possession. But the, the word around is that they're looking to prosecute him for some form of obstruction of justice. You know, as the old expression goes, it's always the cover up. That's not true, by the way. Most cover-ups work. That's why they're used all the time. Tragically, they do work a lot. Uh, so it's not always the cover-up, but it's often the cover-up. And so um, it may very well be that they're going after him, not for the possession of the material, but for what happened after the possession of the material became known to prosecutors. There were rumors now today, I just read about them in, in today's paper, that um, maybe the denials by the Biden administration that they knew nothing about the raid of Mar-a-Lago and they knew nothing about 
the alleged possession of classified material until they read about it in the newspapers. There have been some claims that that's not entirely consistent with the current record, that there are those who think that maybe there was some prior knowledge and some prior complicity between at least some people in the White House or some people in the Justice Department uh, together and that the raid was known to the administration. I don't know the answer um, <clears throat> to that question, and it, it would influence uh, the course of, of proceedings. But the theory, though, of those who are looking for anything to prosecute, and there are plenty of those, is that, well, maybe maybe Trump lied to his lawyers and told them that there was no more classified material when he knew there was. I don't know whether that would be a crime or not. Certainly lying to your lawyer isn't a crime. Otherwise, half of my clients probably would be in jail. Um, and uh, lying to a lawyer for purposes of preventing further investigation, you can make that. It'd be a weak, it would be a weak case. Uh, on the other hand, if he ordered his underlings to destroy material that was under subpoena, uh, that would be a crime. Of course, the other side would argue that Hillary Clinton allegedly did that when her um, servers, etc., were under subpoena. It, it is said a lot on Fox Television, and again, I don't know whether how much of it is is based on on evidence, how much of it on, on speculation um, that. Uh, she ordered the destruction of uh, of uh, evidence, uh, including using chemicals and stuff and hammers to destroy servers. Again, have to look into that. But um, uh, you know, two wrongs don't make a right. Um, although in politics, sometimes two wrongs make it impossible to prosecute one of them um, because of concerns of equal justice and the appearance of justice. So the investigation, as far as I know, is now shifted away from the mere possession of classified material to possible obstruction of justice. We know that his lawyers have been subpoenaed, and I think that's um, unfortunate because uh, a judge, in my view, erroneously ruled that if a lawyer lies to a client, uh, no, I'm sorry, if a client lies to a lawyer that uh, eliminates the privilege. That would mean there'd be no privilege for uh, a very, very large percentage of conversations that occur. <clears throat> when it comes to lawyer-client conversations, truthing is a process, not a result. You don't come in and a good lawyer doesn't say to his uh, a client in a criminal case, all right, tell me right up front, did you shoot the guy or not? No, no, that's not the way it happens. You begin a conversation you begin to get the evidence, the information, uh, there are some lies, maybe you catch them in a lie, eventually you hope to get them to tell the truth, and not always does that happen. Um, in the end, as a lawyer, I have to make a determination of what I think is true and false for two reasons. One, tactically, I don't want to put my client on the witness stand and have him devastated on cross-examination because I'm blindsided and don't know uh, what the prosecution uh, knows. Uh, remember, in a lot of these cases, the witnesses of the prosecution are your client's best friends, know them as well as your client uh, knows himself. And so they will have a lot of information that your client hasn't given to you. So tactically, you always have to make judgments about whether your client is telling you the truth. And ethically, you do too, because you can't put a lawyer, a lawyer can't put a client on the witness stand who he knows is going to tell, who he knows is going to tell a lie. It's an interesting question. I actually 
wrote about it um, in my book, uh, one of my books. Can a lawyer put a client on the witness stand and have the client tell the complete truth in direct examination? That is, where were you on the night of, you know, <clears throat> et cetera, et cetera. Every word coming out of the client's mouth is true. But the lawyer knows that on cross-examination by another lawyer, by the prosecutor, the client will almost certainly lie. Can you put him on the witness stand knowing that he'll tell the truth on direct? That is, you will not elicit a lie, but your opponent will elicit a lie. Hard question. Courts have gone both ways on that. A New York court a rule that you cannot do that. Other courts have said, no, all you're responsible for is your direct examination. Um, so it's, it's, it's an interesting issue. But getting back to, to uh, Florida, we have to wait and see what the evidence is. Uh, right now, I haven't seen evidence of obstruction of justice. And let's remember, a lot of people are saying, and they're just dead wrong when they say this, that there's a legal difference between Biden and Trump. Trump co-op, Biden cooperated immediately. He said, oh, everything. I'll turn over everything. You search anything. Go into my garage. Here's my old car. Uh, search it. Search everything. Uh, he was a good guy. I mean, he, he said, you know, I'm cooperating fully. Trump did not. It is not a crime not to cooperate with the police. Let's be very, very clear about that. You are entitled as a matter of constitutional law to tell the police to buzz off. No, I'm not cooperating. I'm not helping you. I'm not doing a thing. I'm not saying anything. No, you can't lie to them because it is a crime, 1001 under the federal code, to willfully lie to a law enforcement official. You can't do that, but you don't have to cooperate. So the fact that Trump may not have cooperated is not a crime. That's not an obstruction of justice. You are not obligated to put yourself in handcuffs or to provide evidence to the prosecution. You're entitled to remain silent. You're entitled to resist. You're entitled to say, show me, prove it, give me the warrant, go to court, subpoena me. No, I'm not giving you nothing, nothing. You're not getting anything. You can do that. Uh, I'm not suggesting you do do that because that obviously tactically might might hurt you in, in the case eventually. <clears throat> That's something your lawyer would have to advise you on. But I am telling you categorically as a matter of law and Believe me, I know the law when it comes to this because I've done this on behalf of clients and I know clients who have done this. You do not need to cooperate with the authorities and it is not obstruction of justice to refuse to cooperate with the authorities. So let's see what the prosecutors have. Uh, so far, I've seen nothing uh, except for the possession and the possession, although legally, maybe you can make the case. You cannot make the case politically. Now, here's what some people are saying. Look, they both possess material, Biden, along with Pence, and Trump. They both possess the material, so they're both equally guilty. But we have discretion. Who to prosecute? We're not going to prosecute Biden and Pence because they cooperated. We are going to prosecute Trump because he didn't cooperate. It wasn't a crime not to cooperate, but it goes to exercise of our discretion. No, no, it doesn't. It can't. You have a constitutional right not to cooperate under the Fifth Amendment. And under the Sixth Amendment, right to counsel. And you cannot have your lack of cooperation used against you by prosecutors in distinguishing cases that are otherwise indistinguishable. So now we're three for three. Um, there's no case in New York. Uh, there's no case in, in, in Fulton County, Georgia. And I believe there's, at the moment, 
no case in Florida. Now, the heading of my show was Trump shouldn't be charged in Florida unless four dots. Now, what is the unless? The unless is unless he did something that crossed the line into obstruction of justice, into an unlawful cover up. You know, even the word cover up, cover ups are not automatically unlawful. It depends on what you do to cover up. There are lawful cover ups. Uh, failure to disclose incriminating evidence is, in some sense, a cover up, but you have no obligation to, uh, to do that if you have the smoking gun and it's in your drawer buried underneath the tree. And uh, your client knows, your lawyer knows you have the smoking gun, it's buried under the tree or it's in the drawer. Um, the government, you can't hide it, you can't move it if there's a subpoena, but you don't have to disclose it. Uh, if the government doesn't uh, find it, uh, that's their problem, not your problem. You may not agree with that, but that's the law. And there have been many, many cases uh, like that and many, many opinions by courts agreeing with me on that. So uh, let's see what the government can come up with on obstruction of justice. Right now, it does not seem there, though I'm, I'm sure they will uncover every rock, look behind every closet door and see if they can find something. That's the nature of what get Trump means. And again, bottom line, and it's the thesis of the book, get Trump, even if they get him, even if they even if they prove that what he did was criminal, even if they prove that there's something very wrong with a prosecutor running for office on the promise of getting Trump and then getting him even in an Al Capone way. They got Al Capone. They got him fair and square um, because he had committed all the A murders and then B tax evasion. But in general, it should be unethical for any prosecutor to run for office on the promise to target and get a particular individual. You wait until crimes are committed. You then try to find out who commits the crime. That's the way law enforcement operates in the United States. It's not the way it operated in the Soviet Union. It's not the way it operates in Iran. It's not the way it operated in parts of the United States, in the South, in the 1960s, where they targeted civil rights workers. Okay, let's turn to some letters. A lot of more letters about, about Alexander Hamilton. By the way, I recently purchased a whole collection of Alexander Hamilton's handwritten briefs when he was not for long a lawyer um, in, in New York. He was, a, a, as you might imagine, a darn good uh, lawyer. And I have some of his handwritten briefs, some just signed by him, some written by him. But, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a Meshuggah collector. I collect everything dealing with the founding of the United States, particularly with Hamilton and Burr and all those guys. Uh, you can only imagine how much I must have enjoyed Hamilton when I saw it. Actually, I'd read the book before the play came out, uh, the, the book on which the play is based. And I love the book. I gave it to a bunch of people for presents because I thought it was, if not the best, one of the very, very best biographies of a founding father. And as I've said before, Hamilton was by and far the most interesting of the founding uh, fathers, a brilliant and a schmuck. And I guess that makes for interesting reading when you're when you have those two uh, elements in your life uh, combined. Professor, I would be just as happy listening to you talk about history as I would about politics or law. These talks on Hamilton and other Federalists are fascinating. I like how you talk about Judaism, um, too. I also have a collection of, uh, of Judaica I have. 
uh, the original pamphlet that uh, Theodor Herzl wrote called uh, Der Judenstaat, the Jewish state, where he proposes the establishment of a nation state for the Jewish people. There aren't very many copies of that original pamphlet published in German in Vienna. Um, I have a copy of that, and I have copies of a lot of the original. I have a copy of the Israel Declaration of Independence, as I have of the American uh, uh, independence. One of these days, I'm going to write a book on the founding fathers and mothers of Israel and the United States. I that title, um, Founding Fathers and One Jewish Mother. So the founding fathers are, you know, Jefferson on the one hand and Ben-Gurion. They were very similar. They both were agrarians. They wanted to see their countries uh, built on agriculture. Uh, Ben-Gurion, um, through the kibbutz movement, Jefferson, obviously, plantations and other kinds of things. The slavery thing, obviously, plays an important role. Hamilton and Netanyahu are very similar. They both saw uh, international, global economies. And, uh, of course, the Jewish mother is Golda Meir, who served me tea and, and gefilte fish uh, on a Shabbos uh, when I was in um, uh, in Israel and Jerusalem in 1970, and she was the and she was the prime minister. And there are tremendous comparisons between the Israeli founding generation and the American founding generation. And I collected a lot of that material. And some maybe someday, maybe someday, I'll write a book about that. Uh, okay. Let's see what else we have in terms of letters today. We are now a banana republic. The only question is, can we come back from this dangerous, dangerous peak? Only if Trump is reelected. No, I don't agree with you. We're not a banana republic. Why? Because we have a separation of powers, checks and balances. We have the Supreme Court, which can overrule Congress. We have the amending process and we have elections. And I think the elections have been fair. So I do not believe we're a banana republic. I want to do everything I can to stop us from moving in that direction. I think what Bragg has done brings us closer to being a banana republic than almost anything in modern uh, history. Even though it may be reasonable to assume that many of the votes for Pat Buchanan, remember I told you there were over 600 or so, maybe close to 1,000 votes for Pat Buchanan in the highly Jewish neighborhoods of, of Palm Beach uh, uh, County. Although it may be reasonable to assume many of the votes of Pat Buchanan were mistakenly cast, how can you assume that all these votes were mistakenly cast? And what do you say to voters who actually voted for Pat Buchanan? I don't think any voters, certainly from the Jewish community of Palm Beach, voted for Pat Buchanan. Remember, Pat Buchanan was about the most anti-Semitic public figure in modern Israeli times since Father Coughlin. You know, he was a Holocaust denier. He said that uh, there were no gas chambers, uh, and he tried to prove that one day because there were some kids in Washington, D.C. who were stuck in a train, and they didn't die of gas, so there couldn't have been gas chambers. You know, Buchanan is, is a, a, a bigot of the worst kind. I don't know a single Jew who would ever vote for Pat Buchanan. The problem, the reason we didn't pursue the case, I wanted to pursue the case. Um, Al Gore told me not to pursue it because exactly that. W what do you do? Let's assume you can bring 600 people in to testify. No, I didn't think I was voting for Buchanan. I thought I was voting for Senator Lieberman to be vice president. What do you do? Do you have a re-election? Do you give those votes to uh, Gore, it, it, the remedy was very, very difficult. I still think the case should have been brought. I think it was a mistake not to bring it. I think that uh, the Bush people wanted to win the election more than the Gore people. And the Bush people had far, far, far better lawyers than the 
than the Gore people. And so um, um, I read a book about it. You can read it. Supreme Injustice talks about the role of the Supreme Court in turning the election over to uh, President Bush, who I got to like uh, very much as a, a human being. I've met him on a couple of occasions and I really liked him. Uh, okay. Mr. Dershowitz, you made an interesting observation that you wait until all the evidence is in before you decide how to vote. That's very fair, Mike. And that's why I usually wait until election day to vote instead of voting early, even though early voting is usually more convenient. I'm worried that I'll vote early and learn more about the candidate, which I had voted differently. I agree with you 100%. I do not approve of early voting. I do not approve of absentee voting, except for people who have good reason for not being able to vote in person. I think we're moving away from a great American tradition of on election day, people come to the polls, they go into a little secret box and they pull the lever or they write down the name. I think that's the way it should be in general. I think that absentee voting, early voting should be an exception as it has been historically for years. People in the army, people who are traveling, but today we're moving more and more toward having uh, absentee voting, early voting becoming the rule rather than the exception. And I've actually helped and advised in some litigation uh, which, which proposed that. Um, okay. Here's a quote from Napoleon. There are so many laws that nobody is safe from hanging. Well, that's okay. Professor Dershowitz, just curious, how many appeals would you say you've been a lawyer in? I guess it would probably be 250. I probably argued more criminal appeals on behalf of defendants than any American lawyer in history. I suspect that's probably right. Maybe some public defenders have done more. But from a point of view of private lawyers, people in the practice of law, um, raising basic issues, it, I think I've done as much as anybody else. Maybe I'm wrong. I've also won a lot of cases, which make a lot of people mad at me. In fact, I am tonight having dinner with somebody whose appeal I won 30 or 40 years ago and saved her from life imprisonment. And the amazing thing about it is tonight I'm going to meet her for the first time. She was in prison when I argued her appeal and I got her freed. And then she moved to a distant part of the country and I never got to meet her. And I'm meeting her and her children uh, tonight, the woman whose life I saved, basically, she was sentenced to death, but she was sentenced to, she'd still be in prison if we hadn't won the appeal. So I'm very proud of, of some of the appeals I've won. All right. Uh, see you next week. Keep writing letters and uh, stay well.